This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hello, this is Henry Diltz, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Okay, this week's news, as you should know by now, both the show and our sister show, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, that is our insane narrative of the entire history of the music in the latter half of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, we... Um, Decided to do that. Um, uh, what a chore. Uh, we've almost completed the 1960s. Literally, we're, we figure we're about halfway there. And we have a new episode coming very, very shortly. Almost done. It's episode 17, and it's called Bookends. Now, you know uh, you can find us on iTunes and about 40 different podcast platforms. Uh, we really uh, like Spotify and Pandora, but of course, it is all your choice. You decide where you want to listen. And last week, I told you we have entered into a partnership with our friends over at the Osiris Podcasting Network, a global community connecting passionate music fans with podcasts about music, artists, and culture. Uh, like us here at Pantheon Podcast. They are dedicated to the music we love and all that is in the ecosphere uh, in music. So go check out their wonderful set of shows along with Deeper Digs in Rock and the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast at OsirisPod.com. Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us, if you really enjoy what we do here, then please... Please tell a friend about rock and roll archaeology, about deeper digs in rock, art of rock, rock and roll librarian, real rock, vinyl snob, the muses and stuff, any of the shows that you really enjoy, or the whole kit and caboodle Pantheon podcasts. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, that takes care of the housekeeping. So let's meet today's guest. I'm on. Oh, 
are going to dig deep into another of those wonderful coffee table books for you all today. One that opens the door into the private life of the old rock stars to see how they really lived. <laughs> the book is called uh, Rock Stars at Home, and it's a joint effort by several authors. Uh, Chris Charlesworth, Daryl Easley, Edie Feigl, Colin Salter, Simon Spence, and our guest today, Brian Reisman. Brian is the sole American, all the others, all Brits. Uh, the book is filled with many favorite and famous names. Haddon Hall, Cavendish Avenue, The Dakota, Paisley Park, Tough Gong House, Friar Park, Graceland, Broken Arrow, and Neverland Ranch. Now, you thought I was going to say famous people, uh, didn't you? Well, I am betting there was at least one of those famous places that uh, told you who lived there. And for some of you, all the famous names popped into your head. The book hits on these houses and many others. It's filled with contemporaneous photographs of the homes when its equally famous owners did reside in them. And there are some interesting side trips taken as well, uh, like haunted houses, dives, motels and hotels, last abodes of the living, and a very famous jet plane. It's a fun book with some detail of the buildings and grounds at the time the particular rock star lived in them. You know, back when real rock stars walked the earth and when they were apt to open the doors to the public and expose themselves to greater scrutiny than today, back before their very lives depended on greater security and discretion. So let's dig into this book. Let's talk about how they lived with Brian Reisman. I'll light the fire. Place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your love songs all night long. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, uh, Brian Reisman. How are you doing today? I'm fine and dandy. How are you? Fine and, <laughs> fine and dandy. Wow. Uh, it's a very, very old school response. I think mid-20th century, isn't yes, it? Yes, I believe I'm fine and dandy today. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and rather English, of which I think more than half of the uh, homes that were included in uh, the book, Rock Stars at Home, uh, are uh, English in nature. Uh, yes, and uh, so we'll we'll get into this. So, uh, of course, we got to start with you know, tell us how this book came together. How did the six authors? And there are six of you here. Let's let's give out credit right away. Uh, yeah, Chris yeah. Charlesworth, Daryl uh, Eastlia, Edie Feigl, uh, yeah. uh, Colin Salter, Simon Spence, and yourself uh, contributed to put this thing together. Right. So, how did the six authors of this work? put this uh this book together well you know i was contacted i mean i've worked with uh, there's a company called elephant book company in in england and i've worked with them before i'd contributed to a couple books that they did and i also did a bon jovi book for them so an unofficial but uh, way more entertaining than the official version of their official <laughs> book <laughs> because their book is all the about real stories yeah their the official book is yes how great they are right 
well, how great John is. And I'm just like, but, but, you know, it's, it's not just that. So I got contacted to, um, you know, to, to contribute to this and be a part of it. And so I said, okay. And so basically what I had to do, um, you know, they wanted me to contribute four chapters. Uh, since I'm, I'm I'm the hard rock and metal guy, they I did a chapter on GNR and Motley Crue. Did a chapter on uh, some of the heavy metal horror collectors that are out there, like Kirk Hammett uh, um, and Rob Zombie, and and uh, did a chapter on the Osbournes. And then, oddly enough, did a chapter on Cribs, which uh, doesn't have a whole lot to do with with uh, rock and metal necessarily, or hard rock and metal. But it was interesting because there were oh, certain- oh we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, that I mean that's that that was interesting, especially the research because I remember watching that show. Yeah, and then and then you know as with all these, we're, MTV we're talking shows, about MTV cribs, so everything. Yeah, and yeah. talking about the fact that 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 show just, uh, you know, like a lot of MTV shows in the reality genre were pretty pretty fabricated. Um, not everything, but uh, there was just a, a lot of stuff in there that was uh, yes. BS. Well, it is interesting to me. Oh, sorry, go ahead. What reality uh, show is all reality? I, I think the answer is zero, but, uh, you know. Well, we know, it's, I remember Pimp My Ride. I mean, they started, we find it, found a year or two ago that, you know, a lot of those cars didn't really last long after they were souped up. <laughs> right, right, right. And then they were starting to fall apart or things didn't work because you really weren't supposed to uh, – put all of that stuff into a car and have it be able to run. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, it's the same thing with a lot of the cribs uh, with other people's houses. But it's interesting that a majority, I think the, the youngest, I mean, most of these rock stars are, you know, Noel Gallagher is, is the youngest of all of them. Yeah, um, and he's 50-something, uh, I believe now. Yeah, you know, we're looking at his, his home in London in the late 90s, and it's it's funny because I think people had asked me sort of – were asking me well, the difference between sort of classic rock star homes and modern rock star homes are. And I would, I would, I would imagine a big part of that is the fact that you have so many prefab houses and McMansions these days that unless you're a wealthy British rock star who can afford a country manor, you're probably not going to have the same kind of uh, a place. Then again, the singer from him, Ville Vallo, was living in uh, I think uh, – a castle tower outside of helsinki for a long time which is very goth and highly appropriate for what he does right i, I thought that was cool uh, you know but you know it's not like the the george harrison you know friar um, park mansion. right yeah i mean that's i mean that's that's great and that's basically you know, it was like a dilapidated nun school that they he and his wife just refurbished and and turned into something amazing and then put a studio on the top floor it just entirely different and these days two people are a lot more private about where they live i think the whole cribs thing was popular for a time but we've had a lot more had a lot of craziness going on i remember you know after after dimebag daryl was shot you know that week i was going to a listening session for the judas priest reunion album and they were everyone was so nervous in the industry at that point that we weren't told where it was going to be until the morning of uh because because of safety concerns yeah yeah uh, and i think i think people are less likely now to want to reveal a lot of yeah. where they live or what their life is like unless they're doing a reality show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, now everybody just leaves that to the Kardashians. Uh, apparently, they are the new rock stars uh, <laughs> that uh, open, fl- fling open the doors and let everybody into the most intimate parts of their life. Uh, hopefully, that era is going to end soon. Yeah, sometimes too intimate. Um, <laughs> right. I actually was—I was actually at the Monte Carlo TV Festival many, many moons ago, and I—I I literally bumped into Kim Kardashian on the on the red carpet. Um, seemed nice enough, but it was just like they're—they're they're there for. I don't. I don't. I really. It's—it's it's fascinating uh, these days what what qualifies for, who or who qualifies for celebrity status. Um, 
And at the same time, well, it's, it's it's as if Jaja Gabor uh, took over. You know, Jaja most famously, <laughs> you know, being famous for just being famous, and yeah. and that's that's basically what you have here. You know, um, uh, just to take a, a little side trip uh, for a second, because you, you you opened the door of this home, uh, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the Fire Island um, uh, debacle, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and our listeners yeah. are familiar with. Uh, yeah. There's a documentary out on Netflix. And one of the things that just blew my mind was having Kendall Jenner Instagram a single post along with several other models, $500,000. That's what she got for that. (laughs) That is insanity. Uh, That is like, uh, it's just really is it and it's really just basically it's the friends you know you know so she has that number of friends that you know equals you know this dollar amount uh and the right friends if you will for the for for the advertiser uh that's looking for it so uh, well we could go down that rabbit hole but that's enough of that so there are 30 (laughs) homes in the book um so how did you guys decide on which ones to include well, judging from what I can tell, I think they wanted to not just do the obvious ones. You know, I like the fact that there's a section on how the all the Beatles except for Paul had their little psychedelic homes in the in the London suburb of Surrey. Uh, Bowie living with Iggy Pop in an apartment in Berlin, which is say West Berlin, in the late seventies. And you know, and obviously the Cribs thing showing off a variety of different homes. Uh, even the fact that you know the one of the rappers on the Red Man, I mean, he actually was living in this dilapidated Staten Island house without a working doorbell or a garage, and they kept cash on hand. <laughs> you know, there's like, you know, you have the Chelsea Hotel, you have an apartment that Hendrix lived in for a year. It's not that he rented for that he rented from Ringo. Yeah, and it was next door to where the composer Handel had lived. So right. he would get these like classical music students and aficionados coming over, and that got him into his music. He's like, "Well, who is this guy? Like, why do people keep asking for him? <laughs> What's going on?" Right. And I and I like that idea because, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous was obviously a popular show. It was back in the '90s. Now, I mean, yeah. we're talking with you know Robin 80s. Leach. Eighties, actually, the eighties. Actually, really, see, there you go. Actually, went into the '90s. Yeah, and it's, it I forget it when did. exactly it did start. It was. Yeah. I mean, I never really paid that much attention. I remembered it, and I always remember Robin Leach's voice because it was kind of pleasantly annoying, if that's the best way to put it. Um, <laughs> that's a very good description, yes. Yeah, and, and you know, that was when we – I think that's – I was thinking about when a lot of this stuff started to change in terms of celebrity and in terms of being obsessed. And maybe the 80s was really it. Yeah, um, it was, the uh, the decade of greed. Yeah, sure. And that was the, and that was the decade of decadence. That was the yeah. era of Dallas and Dynasty and Falcon yeah. Crest on television. Uh, Wall MTV, Street. Yeah. yeah, MTV came into play. I mean, Reagan. I actually – yeah, Reagan. And you know something, man? I don't see any difference between most of those hair bands and any number of Wall Street brokers no. uh, back in the day. It really – it was the same kind of vibe. It was it was that very popular Republican, you know, make a lot of money, do a lot – party – you know, bang a lot of chicks and then go home and then oh, you mean all over again. Frat boys with hairspray. <laughs> yeah, it was really and it was interesting because that's actually kind of what co-opted heavy metal. You know, you had kind of two things going on. I was a big thrash metal fan back in the day. Uh, Metallica, and, Megadeth, and uh, yeah. Slayer. Those guys. Okay. Yeah, and and then you know I'm a huge Judas Priest fan, so it was oh first was wave a, of uh, the first wave of uh, British metal. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and mm-hmm. so I. I, I, I find it, it was it really the 80s was pivotal in so many different ways. 
Um, and even in, even in the book, you talk about you know George and Olivia Harrison. They actually used to give tours of at least the grounds of their estate up until the time that John Lennon was assassinated, and then you know they closed that up. Um, now, conversely, there's also a section here on uh, Chuck Berry. He had a very cool estate there. Yeah. Uh, uh, Barry Park. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're getting ahead of me here. Right, we'll touch <laughs> on some of these here, but but uh, you know, how, how back to how and why the book came together. How did how did the six of you uh, kind of join forces to make this uh, this book? We worked pretty independently, actually. I mean, I, I was approached by one of the editors, and then just would you know, I and did everything by email, actually. Probably just because I was also the lone American. They may have all sat there and gone out drinking and traded oh, lots. All of the others are are are, are UK. I believe, okay. I believe it's all UK based, which is why, as also partly why I'm doing all the press here. Because um, <laughs> you're you're it. <laughs> you're, you're the you know, as zone. I think most, if not all, of them. Yeah. So uh, you know, you have. You have that going on. It's the same thing when I, I did the Art of Metal book. I think there was like – I think you know uh, Martin, Martin Popoff, who's Canadian, was involved. I was involved. And oh, then I, think I know everyone, I, think, I think everyone else was just UK-based because um, Elephant Book Company is UK-based. And what they do is they create the books and then they – they sell them to other territories. So, for example, this book goes to Apollo Publishers, who are based here in New York. They're a Newark company. When I did the Bon Jovi book, that was sold to Sterling, which is owned by Barnes and Noble. Um, one of the other books I worked on was it was distributed here by Voyager Press, uh, based out of uh, Minneapolis. So it's 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 interesting how they do it. So they create the book and then they find they sell it to different territories. Um, which is interesting because you know usually you think of you just go to a publisher and you get a deal and that's it. Yeah, yeah. But there, there are some smaller publishers that do that. They create the books and then they. So they're they like sell- the, they're, they're like the, the the independent labels of of old that sell to the majors. Yeah, yeah. So and and I, and I like the fact that I think it just they 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 try to come up with interesting themed book ideas. Mm. It's very hard to just sell a you know even you know the, when they approached me about the Bon Jovi book you know it's it's harder to do a lot of those books now. But if you have a band like that that's got a huge name, it's a little easier to at least get a certain amount of presales. You're going to get a certain amount of press. I mean, this has gotten a good amount of press. They got coverage in the Daily Mail, UK. They got coverage, a little bit of coverage in Page Six. Uh, in New York and uh, Billboard.com ran a nice story. So, and I've been doing a lot of uh, sort of different regional radio press here in the states for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think I think themed books are the way to go now. Yeah. You have to have something. You have to have something yeah. interesting. So, I mean, when you go to, you when you go to gra- the- it's a grabber. I mean, as we know, the publishing industry is suffering through uh, disruption, and uh, everybody's trying to find uh, you know the new methodology to uh, capture eyeballs, right? Exactly. I mean, and I mean, look, when you go into the bookstore, what do you do when you go to the music section? <laughs> yeah, uh, you yeah, you want something that's going to jump out at you. Uh, you know, I mean, the old days, uh, you know, with, you know, the 12 inch album, um, uh, you know, probably 30 percent. I've been told this 30 percent of the sales were just dependent on the cover. Yep. So no, I, I can see that. I mean, you know, they have a cool shot here, Elton John on the cover with an endless sea of shoes in front of him, yeah, and and in suits and shirts behind him. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I actually like contributing to books that have a lot of photos. I mean, that's Rock Stars at Home has got tons of them. The Bon Jovi book had like at least 140 or 150, um, which means you're kind of balancing out text and images. But I think people want that. 
Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, and and again, we we we're, we're taking a, a a visual presentation, and we're going to discuss it today in an audio format. Um, but uh, you and I will both be very descriptive, as descriptive as we possibly can. But the, the point is, is let's get uh, folks to you know take an interest and uh, and and get out and uh, add this to their collection. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful coffee table book, and there's lots of of unique uh, pictures of uh, yeah. these the you know our heroes. Let's face. It, uh, you know, in their uh, natural environment, uh, so we can exactly. kind of try to glean more about uh, who they are. So let's dive into a few of these. Uh, we can't touch them all uh, today, yeah. but uh, uh, and and tell the diggers what it is uh, you dug up while researching uh, these uh, here. Um, interestingly, uh, interestingly, you begin with Frank Sinatra's. Palm Springs home, uh, Twin yep. Palms. Uh, why include a home of a guy who famously hated rock, early rock and roll? Well, in a way, he was sort of the original rock star, wasn't he? <laughs> I mean, he. I mean, he sung these very romantic songs, and uh, you know, ladies swooned over him. But he still had those mob ties, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> connections to Vegas and the Rat Pack. And you got, you kind of got the idea. The guy probably partied a bit more than than you thought. I mean. He went through a number of different wives. Um, you know, his fourth wife, Barbara, was a former Vegas showgirl yeah. uh, and married yeah. one of the Marks brothers. Yeah. And yeah. I think he uh, he had a I think he had a good time there. And and I think he lived lavishly. And, and, he, and he banged a lot of broads. Exactly. And he had you know he had the uh, the pool there, which kind of has the bit of the shape of a piano. Yeah. So like so really, yeah. Yeah. I think in, in yeah. Palm Springs there, uh, uh, and kind of turned Palm Springs into what it is today. Yeah, exactly. And I think people, you know, rock stars would try to emulate emulate some, that kind of a, a vibe later on. People wanted to have an original home, something different. Um, they wanted to they wanted to show off, but and but at the same time. Each house tends to be sort of – I guess in a lot of it, it, it represents the personality of the owner. Now, there are some people that probably want a very simple home, nothing really exciting, but obviously various different rock stars in here um, you know, chose very specific locations. I mean Freddie Mercury's home in, in the middle of London was – you wouldn't necessarily know he lived there Yeah, just walking by it, but inside – it it was it was it had a lot of it was a lot of Japanese art too and a very a lot of Japanese a big Japanese theme in his, in his place but also it kind of reflected him I mean he was someone who was he loved being a rock star but he was also a very private person so it kind of makes sense that inside you have this this kind of this this great interior but outside it's you know it's kind of tall tall brick wall and and <laughs> and uh, you know metal fencing just to keep people out it is kind of the way he was he he was actually an intensely private person when he was away from the spotlight he had two personas in a way. Well, I, I was going to ask, um, you know, it's featured in the recent biopic, uh, now the most successful musical music biopic yeah. of all time. Um, the house is called Garden Lodge. It It, it is uh, in uh, Kensington, London. Uh, yep. And to your point, you could just walk by the tall walls and, and not know it was anything other than, uh, you know, a, you know, a typical uh, uh, home of the area uh, there. But, uh, you know, the, 
the movie uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is, uh, you know, a huge success. Everybody uh, who's interested in uh, in Queen, uh, even remotely, apparently, has gone and seen it. Uh, the man, of course, Freddie Mercury. And like the movie, yeah. uh, and to your point, uh, you know, there are two sides, uh, at least two sides uh, to Freddie. Um, and uh, there is the uh, the showman, the, you know, out there, Freddie Mercury on stage. And then there is the, the quiet private man behind the walls, right? Yeah, and of course, you know, when I think the, the thing I like to say about a lot of these rock stars that are profiled here is that their homes are like, it's like their personal fortress of solitude. So it's it's really, I mean, if you looked at Superman's fortress of solitude on the outside, it's, it's impressive looking, but you know, what what's in there? It looks like in the movie, the, 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 in the Donner film, it looks like just a bunch of crystals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> connected outside, but you go inside, and it's got this advanced technology that you might not suspect and these open spaces and this kind of wild architecture. And I don't think, you know, you necessarily need to show off outside. I mean, there are some people that like to have a, a, a big mansion. They like to have something crazy. I mean, you look at someone like Tommy Lee. He wanted his, his, his place with Pamela Anderson to kind of have a club vibe. I mean, it was their house, but, you know, it was still like I'm sure he had some wild parties. And he, he kind of wanted that to emulate the life that he led. Which was a little, a lot more unfiltered, I would think, <laughs> than someone like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Freddie Mercury was known for wild parties, but they weren't parties that you heard about at home. No. It was always somewhere else. Yeah. It was London, it was Ibiza, it was different places. And I found a funny YouTube video, actually, which was, I think it was, it was for a party in 1986 in the Kensington Gardens area. And it was, um, I think it was after they'd played Wembley. And, you know, there were there were basically like in in the in the men's bathroom, there were, it was like one or two women in lingerie in the women's bathroom. There was a guy like in his underwear holding like a, 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 a tray with some towels. And the part they couldn't show was like these sort of half naked body server servers in body paint. Um, supposedly he liked to have dwarves at certain parties. I mean, there was a rumor that at the party for the Queen album Jazz in 1978, which they held in New Orleans, he had uh, dwarves carrying, carrying, putting plates on their head with Coke on it, which has been debunked by one of their former their former roadie. But, <laughs> and I'm not sure what Peter Dinklage would think I, of that today. Uh, oh, <laughs> I, I, I think you are now describing uh, the what would have been the Sasha Baron Cohen version of Bohemian. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The, the funny thing about that film is, you know, I've, I like a lot of Queen's music. I'm more of a casual fan. I've the friends of mine and the people that I've seen online that are really big fans of just they while they loved the vibe of the movie, they they can just easily pick apart all the factual inaccuracies of that of that movie, even down to the fact that uh, the cats that are named in the film he had not adopted until later on. <laughs> I mean, we're getting that minute. <laughs> you know, uh, that's an, an interesting piece that you bring up here. So because uh, rock and roll in a lot of ways does it just never translates well to the screen. Um, uh, most famously, and uh, in, in, in probably already forgotten, is uh, uh, Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger's attempt at trying to recreate that uh, that seventies feel with vinyl uh, on HBO, of which yeah. they spent a hundred million dollars on uh, yeah. for for the first season, a single season, and it just it just flopped completely and utterly flopped. And I think a lot of it was due to the fact that the history in narrative form is difficult because there's so much investment in it 
from yeah. people who lived it. Uh, whether they were, you know, part of the band or just a fan, you know, there was so much information that was available in real time. Uh, yeah. If you if you were a serious fan, uh, you know, certainly the albums and the liner notes and what you could gather from that, and then the interviews and the magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream and what have you, um, and then uh, you know the the radio interviews and things like that. So people always had some sort of idea of who they were and and how things went, and we're not far enough away from the period uh, that enough of the people who were there have died. So you could take some artistic license, but funnily, uh, interestingly yeah. enough to your point, this movie does exactly that and it succeeds wildly. And I think it yeah. is because they captured the vibe. There was this love and passion that just comes out on the screen, uh, certainly from the actors uh, and the crew. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's not exactly the, the true story, is it? Well, I think I think part of the problem too is that when they, I, I think it's you know there vinyl is criticized for the dialogue and obviously there's factual inaccuracies and a lot of times when people attempt to recreate an era, it, it's weird. Hollywood just they kind of want to ignore some basic things like going and talking to as you said talking to the people that actually lived it. I mean it's great that they gave a shout out to the Good Rats. Um, who were you yeah. know a wild, wildly successful New York band that weren't wildly successful on a national level, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I'm friendly with Joe Franco, their drummer, you know, and they, those guys were living large when they, when they were when they were together. I mean, in, in the New York area, they could play. I mean, back then, you still had uh, bars where it was 18 and over, not 21 and over. Yeah. So you could you could cram some of these bars in New York, from what I heard from him and JJ French and Twisted Sister, like like 3,000, 4,000 people. They were huge. So you could get lots of young people, college kids, to come out to these shows, and, and the local bands, like the Good Rats, you know, a couple of those guys are like driving, you know, Lincolns. <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but as, a, as a regional uh, successful band. Yeah, yeah but, they, but nationally they weren't really taking off. And then they said, you know, I think Joe told me the national acts would come through and like ask them, how are you guys doing this? <laughs> like we're not making any money on the road and you yeah, guys yeah. are killing yeah, it. You don't have to go anywhere. You know, no motels for you. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Tw- as you mentioned, Twisted Sister, I mean, they 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 suffered for decade uh, plus uh, before yeah. they ever hit it, uh, you know, with their, their famous MTV uh, videos. So, all right, let's get back to the book. So the next two yeah. homes – are the fathers of rock and roll. Uh, Chuck Berry's uh, Berry Park outside of St. Louis, and of course the yeah. most famous of all rock star homes, uh, Elvis's Graceland, of which yeah. there are a ton of books uh, written about. So let's discuss the true father of rock and roll, Chuck's house. Anything come to light about uh, Chuck uh, metaphorically uh, while walking around his home? Well, that was Colin Salter's chapter, um, and... What I do think is interesting is the fact that, you know, we had Barry Park Studios and Barry Park and the problem and which had a concert stage. The problem is, is that he even though he would do concerts there, um, he ended up having these these hidden cameras in the, in the bathrooms, yeah. <laughs> which you know, caught con- customers on tape and also, you know, some of his own little uh Sexual exploits, uh, exploits. Yes. Yes, yes, and, yes, and so that, that, that was something that maybe not a lot of people would know. I mean, you'd, you'd think that it was a was, big deal at the time. It was. And but, you Chuck, know, Chuck had run into trouble with the law before that as well. Well, a lot of these guys, I mean, look at Jerry Lee Lewis, man. He's yeah. also in the book. I mean, he, yeah. uh, the whole thing, marrying his cousin. I mean, it, it, it's amazing actually what you could get away with in the old days. Oh, literally people, shooting people and getting away with it. 
You know, and like, and now you look at the R. Kelly scandal that's going on. I mean, it, it took years of investigate of you know investigative journalism, and it took, you know, a giant documentary to really uh, make people Kelly, realize yeah. what was going on and, and yeah. substanti- substantiate a lot of these claims. You know, and we'll see how that's going to play out uh, in in court. But it, it's really interesting how, yeah, people people sort of assume that someone like someone like Chuck Berry, even someone like Frank Sinatra. I mean, you, you sort of, you look at them on the outside and you, and you look, think of them one way, but you know, on the inside, there's other, and, and, and behind closed doors, there might, might be other things going on. Um, and by the same token, though, there are, are people like, I think Freddie Mercury was the exact opposite. I think at home, he was probably a lot mellower and it was outside where he was wild. But you didn't get the sense of like people saying bad things about Freddie Mercury. Right. Which I think is important. You know, you didn't you know, when you look at like G and R and Motley Crue, those guys were bad boys. They did bad things. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and people told other people about the bad things afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's you know that that's interesting that, you know, you have that, that little scandal there. I mean Elvis obviously just had a very eclectic mixture of <laughs> well it's it's the, you know, there are there are two pieces to 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 that chapter i mean you 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 do uh bring up the um the shotgun shack in tupelo uh, i think right. there's actually a picture in it as well yeah um but you know graceland is the the home that he bought uh you know at the you know beginning of his success and he lived there his entire life and and died in the house yeah yeah the jungle room you've got that great tv lounge with multiple televisions and uh, you know, he, uh, he liked monkeys, uh, <laughs> very clearly. Oh, come on. Who doesn't like monkeys? Yeah. But I, I but, uh, it's interesting that, uh, also he didn't like to, to do furniture shopping either. So he bought a, a lot of stuff. He just bought very quickly, like for the jungle, just bought it very quickly just to, 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 it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. Yeah. I, I kind of, I guess, I guess us guys, we really don't like to, uh, we don't really like to think about it too much. I mean, I my my place, I joke, is like a pop culture museum with a bed, because I've been in this industry so long now. You know, I've got the toys and the and the and the comic books and the tchotchkes and everything else. I'm sure you've collected a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I feel like you know I'm a little different. Instead of purposely shopping, it just accumulates, and then yeah, suddenly I'm like, just a big oh. pile of stuff. Uh, you know, or you know, I like. Uh, lanyards around or uh, uh, photographs uh, and, and almost to the point of like, I don't know what to do with all the stuff now. Well, like, you know, I have like this, this Kylie Minogue cut out from the fever album. And then I have like, uh, I have a, a, a stuffed Jack Skellington from nightmare before Christmas. And then over there there's Godzilla. And then I have, uh, I got a saw, I got this like a uh, jelly belly mascot, like a giant, jelly bean with a hat on it looking like a chef it's just all it's all random and yellow submarine stuff and it probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to somebody just walking in <laughs> but like these are the things i like right i guess right. elvis didn't really want to take the time he had other things to do <laughs> no he, taking care of business baby you, you know, know and, and, TCB, and, 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 tcb but from what i understand also when you go to graceland you can't see all of those rooms either um, I was, you know, so I think well, they went there recently and I wonder, you know, if that was different years ago, I've actually never been to Graceland, but I, I wonder if years ago that was different and things change over time. You have too many people touching things and people don't really respect property as much. And so unfortunately that means you have a limited access to things. Um, have you ever been down to Graceland? No, I haven't. Uh, it's, it's, it's on the list just because, I mean, I've never had that sort of desire. Uh, it's kind of weird and creepy to me but um at the same time you know as the rock and roll archaeologist i i guess i must make the uh the trip to mecca uh one day right well I, there's, there's a lot of places that i should probably go i've I'm, I've gotten so used to traveling to europe 
to uh, to see things. I'm like, you know, I should probably travel around the U.S. Right. Uh, more. I, um, I, you know, as far as touching things, I learned a lesson. I remember I went to Berlin back in 2006 a couple of times to interview some metal bands, and there was a big Egyptian art exhibit. And my ex-girlfriend had gone with me to take some photographs. Yeah, the uh, uh, the head of Nefertiti is at the Berlin Museum. Mm-hmm. So it was like there's like this stone tablet. She's like, she touches it. She's like, go ahead, touch it. I'm like, no, seriously. And as soon as I do it, then a security guard sees me. He <laughs> <laughs> goes, over, no, 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 you can't do that. No, don't touch that. All right. I, I suppose in New York, I probably would have just gotten thrown out. But I was like, yeah, great. I'm not doing that again. Um, yeah, it was funny, but, uh, but uh, yeah, no. I mean, and a lot of these people. Are you know one of the chapters that I did contribute um, dealt with uh, people like Kirk Hammett and and Rob Zombie who like to collect horror movie stuff. In the case of Rob Zombie, it's more of his horror movie stuff. Yeah, I've and seen the- some of Kurt's uh, actually uh, not too long ago at the San Francisco uh, International Airport. Uh, they had a display of uh, some of Kurt's uh, horror uh, collection. Oh yeah, no, and you, and you know, what's interesting is that. Uh, Right, like two months before I actually finished my chapter, this chapter, they had a, an exhibit of Kirk stuff up in Salem, Massachusetts, the Peabody Essex Museum. So I actually saw a lot of his stuff on display. It was perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's he's um, he's definitely like a classic Universal monsters, like really old school horror guy. Whereas Rob Zombie kind of goes more into the '70s and '80s, right, right, and a bit of the '60s. You know, Corey Taylor is a big comic book fan. I mean, I've talked to him about stuff like that before. I think I think he has an app. One story I read about him, I think he has an app on his phone to make sure he doesn't, you know, buy something he already has. <laughs> which I actually Do I already to, own it. Don't buy you know, it. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm getting to that. I've gotten to that point with comics over the years. Like, I got to be careful because you know, you just you don't remember things anymore. And, you know, as we go on now, man, it's like as you get older, you're you don't remember things as quickly, and you also you just get bombarded with information day after day. It's it's insane. I mean, I think that's that's part of the challenge here. I mean, to look at a book like rock stars at home and it's good to collect all the information in, in one place. Um, you know, I suppose if you wanted to, you could research this stuff all over the place, but do you really want to spend the time and have no framework for it? Which is what I like. What a lot of people did here is they put a framework around stuff and picked specific locales from specific periods. It's amazing. I actually feel that, and I don't know how you, what you think about this, but I, I feel like a majority of music fans really don't know much about the bands that they love. They basically like the music. I, I know when I wrote the Bon Jovi book, I said, you know, I wonder – the hardcore fans are going to find something new in here because they probably know everything. But I did have some fans tell me that at least the first couple chapters since I found all these people that worked with him before he was famous that they did learn something. But then I realized the majority of the fans just go to the concert. They hear the songs. Some of them might not have kept up with the new albums, and they don't think about it. Um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've encountered that yourself. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it's a lot of what we do is to educate the populace on, uh, you know, what happened, what this, what this period was. Is uh, as, as I like to say, uh, you know, this uh, music of the latter half of the twentieth century, which we just all dub rock and roll, yep. is uh, is an art form that is as important as the Italian Renaissance. Uh, and the further we get away from it, and the more it becomes loss. Uh, the more important uh, uh, it becomes. Uh, and, and I brought this up to uh, fans, to uh, rock stars themselves, to uh, suits and executives, and all of them completely and utterly agree now that it's becoming more and more obvious that this time really, really has passed. I, I don't, yeah, and when you look at a lot of these homes, it's uh, 
you can see that I don't know that young, it's like younger people. I'm wondering what they're getting exposed to also and what they're used to. American culture, we've, I call it the mauling of America as an M-A-L-L. Yeah. Um, you know, so much prefab stuff. It's interesting. I was just watching uh, David Byrne's True Stories. And I had never seen that film before, and Criterion just did this really nice deluxe edition, a uh, Blu-ray of it. And it's funny because it's this really sort of quaint little movie where he plays this guy who's got a, got a cowboy hat, and he just goes down to this town in Texas, and he's showing you this quaint little town and how it's slowly getting overtaken by malls and prefab houses and industrial buildings. And you don't think anything that much of it until you start to realize what he's showing you is the side of America that is disappearing, which is like this quirky small town where people are just surviving. It's not just a small town. I, I live in San Francisco, and uh, yeah. I can tell you that the, the town has morphed from, um, you know, this this unique character – uh, that I fell in love with and why I moved here from Los Angeles uh, into just every city USA. Uh, New yeah. York's another example. Um, you oh, know, God, I used yeah. to go to New York and, you know, the, all the uh, every, every every street corner was different. Uh, the smells were different. And uh, the last couple of times, you know, certainly since 9-11, uh, the last couple of times I've been there, it's just it just reminds me of fucking Disneyland. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 awful. I mean, St. Mark's Place has been losing its character for a while. I mean, there's still some cool stuff. Not like St. Mark's Comics is gone. It's going to be going soon. They're closing. I don't know if they're going to move, but then you know, Trash and Vaudeville, uh, they moved. Yeah, they, they yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And they're still around. I, I visit there every time, so I, I I know they're just around the corner. But uh, but it's not like the the original shop. You know, and Kim and Kim's video is there for a while. That's gone. Um, you just had a lot of things. It, it sounds, you know, the music store where I spent a lot of money when I was in college and found a lot of cool deals yeah, there. Bleaker, Bleaker Bob's is gone too now, right? Yep, them in the West Village. Yeah. They were kind of pricks though, but <laughs> <laughs> they were. I mean, I, I, I just would remember getting personal. <laughs> yeah, they just, I remember I was trying to sell stuff in there and I, and the guy was just like sort of a jerk to me and his coworker. I'm like, really? This is like, I guess because of our long hair or whatever, but it was just like they were, they were cranky and some people find that curmudgeonly attitude, uh, endearing i didn't really i mean they had a great selection of stuff i didn't think the prices were phenomenally great but you could at least find it which i think is the trick here like if you go to generation records which is near to where bleaker bobs was that was uh that's still you can still go you know digging into the into the bins there or really kind of almost like the the trays of uh of cd cases it's 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 a different world i mean i brooklyn actually has cooler rock bars now than manhattan does yeah yeah um you know and, and there's a bar actually and my girlfriend near where well, my girl Brooklyn's now hipster town. It is. But, you know, it's interesting. There's a bar there called Rockarola. And uh, my girlfriend, Susan, and I like to go there. And it's basically only 70s and 80s album art on the wall. There's like a, a neon Judas Priest sign, maybe like a neon ACDC thing, a Metallica pinball machine. Um, they have uh, cool drinks like um, like this thing called the banana hammock and the uh, bourbon slush. Uh, which is like a giant Jack and Coke, like a goblet bay. Like, <laughs> in a slushy. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and there's a CD jukebox that only has 70s and 80s hard rock and metal and a little pop on there. Mm. Um, if if someone's not playing something on that, then you end up with whatever's on on the iPod. And it's all pretty much people that are 15 to 20 years younger than me. That being said, it's at least cool that they appreciate that music. And on the weekend, that place is packed. It's in a small building that unfortunately has a, a giant apartment building that's being constructed around it. And I'm hoping that they are, are still going to stay there. And it's nice to see at least younger people there appreciating it. But the hilarious thing about that is I don't think they necessarily know what the bands look like. I remember we were there. I remember like a Dio song came on and people were singing. And then a Priest song came on. And I'm talking to a couple of younger people, this younger gal there. And 
and they're saying, along, you know, what I, I think it was that you got another thing coming. And, and so I, I said, I said, here, I'll try to be the cool older guy, pull out my, and, and I pulled out my phone and I had a picture of me and Rob, and Rob Halford from like 20 years ago uh, when we test drove a Corvette. And, and she's like, she had no idea who it was. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> that's just ironic. Wow. Uh, so, uh, did, what, what was Rob decked out in, uh, the, the leather and studs? No, but you could still you could if you knew his face, you would know that yeah. it was it was, for, it was two album. I mean, I, I I have a feeling maybe if it was a classic, uh, a classic of, era, uh, yeah, uh, maybe. But it, they, they, I don't think they still would. I mean, it's yeah. like, isn't it? There's that meme on Facebook with the Ramones, where like you know the Ramones see this gal in a Ramones T-shirt. Hey, baby, you like my band? What? Who? Uh, who? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, there there are several asides in the in the book beyond a list sure. of poems, and and I'll ask about a few of those, but. But first, what do you think uh, was just the most ridiculous or weirdest home in the book? Maybe the one that just exudes the psyche of its owner. That's a good question. I'm going to flip through here because, you know, the the, the, the one I find interesting, I mean, Johnny Cash's uh, house is pretty interesting. Oh, in Tennessee. You know, that, mm-hmm. that it, sort of, it was sort of looked like a Frank Lloyd Wright, Wright home. It was yeah, not right not, on the river and everything. Yeah, Not symmetrical. Um, a lot of stonework, kind of off the wall. I'm gonna actually Unfortunately, go- it burned down, uh, I believe, in, uh, uh, I think, uh, 2007, right? Yeah, I mean, evidently, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a shame because, you know, they also shot his video there for Hurt right. that, that came out in 2003, which is, actually, yeah. mm-hmm. which is actually a very moving video. Oh, yes. Um, you know, so he, he kind of wanted something, he wanted something different. I guess the... Uh, the owner didn't want to sell it to him, and so he kept raising the offer until he reached 150k. <laughs> wow! And and the guy's like, okay, you know, the owner Braxton uh, Dixon, you know, he he was who's the one that built it. He's like, yeah, okay, uh, I, I have to take the money. <laughs> yeah, 150,000. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, pocket change today for a home. Uh, you know, cert- it's got- certainly where you and I live, uh, definitely. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could, uh, you could buy a shotgun shack for that, uh, in, uh, in our locales, you know, and like the, and, and the sidewalk kind of curves in an odd way. And there's like a cylindrical structure next to kind of what would be more like a more classic looking home. Um, lots of wood. It's, I, you know, it's, it's, you just have to kind of look at it. You just have to look at the pictures to see it. Yeah. It's, it's 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 highly unusual. I'm not even sure what kind of style you would call it because it's it's not of any particular style. Right, 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 right. That's a good one. That's a good one. And and, and it's and, on a, it's on a, and, it got a, and a lake got a very a beautiful view at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and good pick, Johnny Cash is. Uh, uh, I, I mean, is, is, isn't he the hippest man to have ever lived? I think so. I mean, and, and, I mean, what it says that you know, even if you don't like country music, no, like Cash. everybody likes Johnny Cash. I mean, he's just Mr. Badass. So. Well, I mean, look, I went to the Johnny Cash Museum in Nashville uh-huh. at, uh, when I was uh, visiting relatives last year, and you know, I was like, I hadn't seen the video for Hurt probably since it had come out, but I, you know, I find myself tearing up watching it. Yeah, there's just something about it. he took this this song, which is a sad song from the end of the Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails, and and made it his own. Yeah. Uh, very personal, and, and he was—he oh, re- was a great interpreter of songs. Uh, he was reaching the end of his life career. too, though. Yeah, and yeah, and he's yeah, he's about ready to die uh, here. With the, I think that was the last video that he shot. Yeah, yeah. So you just yeah. you're just like wow. It just you know he it went through a lot of different phases. I mean, he was someone who you can only imagine the different places he lived all throughout his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking, you know, another, you know, a play. A, 
play. I mean, I like I like the Harrisons home just because it's just now. Hold on, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. All right. So of course you're going to include the Beatles in anything that is uh, encompassing rock and roll. Of course. Uh, and, and, and as usual, the the other three Beatles are uh, are are represented, but not Ringo. Why did you not include a home for Ringo? That's a good question. I'm going to ask them that. <laughs> Until you mentioned, I hadn't actually even thought about it. Yeah, I mean, and- he is. He is part of that. He is part of that section, though. They were in the in in the psychedelic suburbia. Uh, yeah, part of yeah. Chapter and 30, as, we, yeah. as we've already discussed, the the house that Jimmy uh, is uh, Jimmy Hendrix is represented. It was actually uh, owned by Ringo. He rented it to Jingo, to, to 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 Jimmy. Right. And it's funny because one of uh, Ringo's homes actually thinks where Judas Priest worked on British Steel. That so is Ringo. True. That is that is uh, exactly. Uh, and they uh, they rifled through all the uh, the collectibles that Ringo had, like gold records and things like that, and uh, were like, uh, yeah, whatever. Well, I mean, look, you do you do have because <laughs> it was whatever have, at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, you do have uh, Sunny Heights represented in here, and there's a picture of uh, Ringo at the bar there, and it yeah. does talk about the fact that Peter Sellers. Had uh, had lived there, and in fact, you know, Peter Sellers originally had started out as a drummer. There was actually a drum kit set up in the house when he got there. So that was another reason for him to want to buy it. Ah, so, so Ringo it, is there just secretly. <laughs> he's there, and and you know, and that's that's. I'm curious, like, what other? It's true, Ringo. Kind of, I'm a drummer, so you know, the drummers always get ignored. That's a basis too, actually. But <laughs> yeah, well, at least, at, yeah. But drummers are hidden behind, uh, you know, the big kit, and uh, you know, so you know, yeah. To your point, uh, they're in the back. But I didn't know that about Peter Sellers. I didn't realize he was a drummer, and and, and, that, yeah. and they worked on that film, The Magic Christian, which is how they met. So that well, that's... and remember, uh, George Martin uh, famously, um, you know, worked with the Goons before the Beatles. Right, right. Oh, wow! Lots of connection points being made. There we go. Well, that's, wow. it, it is, and then isn't that that that's what is funny about all this stuff? Is you get older, you can connect so many different groups. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're shocked at like who manages who, and you're like, wait a minute, that person did that. And I always yeah. love Alan Klein like, managed the Beatles and the Rolling Stones at the same time. What the hell? Yeah, things like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, but the other three are represented. Um, uh, Paul's St. John Wood home, uh, of which he still owns and lives uh, when he's in London. Um, why not the Scottish Farm um, High Park uh, uh, in Kintyre, um, uh, where he retreated after the breakup? That's a good question, actually. That I'd have to ask them, to be honest. And I can get back to you on that. But you do do the St. John Wood home, which is, um, uh, you know, uh, it's like a, a five-minute walk to Abbey Road Studios uh, in the heart of London, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that, that made it very convenient. And he liked – Paul's always liked being a rock star, I think. You know, he doesn't seem to mind drawing attention to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it got a little difficult after a while with lots of fans hanging around outside. You know? uh, yeah, trying to get over the fence and trying to get into the studio. And, oh, yeah, there's there's numerous stories of, of that. Uh, and all uh, thought innocently uh, at the time. Um, I mean, know, there, is, there, is, there is a park. There, there, are, there is a, a shot of High Park Farm here. From with him and Linda, October sixty four. Yeah, in the in the in the book. Yeah. Um, so uh, the uh, with John, you have both uh, Tittenhurst Park and uh, in the Dakota. So, which is your favorite? That's a good question. I mean, I, I probably am partial to Dakota because I live near New York. 
Yeah. And I've been by there been, and it's just, yeah, yeah. and also, you know, Rosemary's baby. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. I'm a big, I'm a big horror, uh, horror maven. So, I mean, I like a lot of these, uh, these, these British manners and stuff like that. I mean, Tinder's Hark, but you know, it's just very plain white and it's not quite as majestic to me as the Dakota. I mean, the Dakota building is very imposing. It's huge. Yeah. Um, and it's a classic old New York building mm-hmm. uh, that you just, you know, whereas right, like right Park, across the street from Central Park. Yeah, it's cool. But you might not you look at Sittenhurst Park. You might not necessarily you could walk by that necessarily think John Lennon. Of course, you walk by the Dakota. That's all you're going to think about, oh, especially now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, strawberry so. fields being across the street uh, there in the park as well, uh, you know, dedicated to, to John's uh, uh, memory. Um, well, that, and that's the thing is I love about that old school New York architecture, and uh, and it's it is interesting that he chose to li- live in New York City because actually he felt you could be more anonymous here. Yeah, uh, so I think it is in a, in a city. I mean, I, there might be people that would argue that, but uh, I guess you know New Yorkers are kind of more used to celebrity. In fact, I just recently, recently did a story on uh, on the the first Skid Row album, like a 30th anniversary story for Billboard. And, uh, you know, the bassist, Rachel Boland, had told me he wasn't really comfortable with fame when they became huge. Like, he couldn't go to his local mall because he would, the, a crowd would form. And then, like, he just wanted to hang out, and he couldn't. <laughs> They'd ask him to leave. <laughs> and Sebastian said, yeah, you know, we were so popular in Jersey, we would go to New York. Like, they're used to rock stars there. <laughs> <laughs> and go so it, was, out there. It, was, it was easier to do that. People don't you – know, New Yorkers are kind of jaded, so they're not going to come up to you the same way that you, if you were if, if, if you're in you're middle boss. America you're right, yeah. right 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 so I, I left George's Friar Park last because it may be the most interesting since of, of the Beatles uh, uh, abodes uh, oh, definitely. Since he spent a lot of time on it uh, and himself spiritually it's also where he was attacked and almost killed in 1999 and where he peacefully left this world in 2001. Yeah, no, it's 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 a. I mean, it, it's you know a former. It's like I said, a former nun school that was just falling apart, and they decided to buy it. I think uh, at the time, though, he was uh, he was with Patty, but uh, yeah, Patty Boyd. You know, he you know he they paid one hundred and forty thousand pounds, which today, if I did on the inflation calculator, I guarantee it's got to be at least a million dollars. So he really had to refurbish it. Um, I believe Danny had said that, you know, he, even when he was gardening, he would do a lot of it at night so he wouldn't see all the weeds on the property. He wanted to kind of be in a certain state of mind to, to focus on the beautiful aspect of it. I mean, it's huge. And on top of that, you know, they had a studio on the top floor. They built a studio up there. So he actually, you know, he recorded, uh, you know, he recorded, he recorded part of Living in the Material World there. He recorded Dark Horse there. Um, he had different people come in, um, like Ravi Shankar. And, you know, it, as I said, they did, did give tours up until uh, a lot of uh, – they gave up tours up until I think the time that John Lennon was shot and then yeah, they stopped doing that. But then again, but then, again he, but then he didn't pass. He, he, you know, he didn't pass until 2001. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's It was a place that I think like, like – once again, Fortress of Solitude. I mean it's a beautiful property, lots of acres of land. It's beautiful. It's definitely like – you know, Lots you almost, of water. Lots of water, and 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 almost you almost wouldn't think that a rock star would necessarily live there. You might think it's no, like, like some English country gentleman. 
like a British lord or something yeah. like that. But, well, but then again, he, I guess let he us face it, they are <laughs> the lords of rock and roll, right? So, yeah. and yeah, I mean, I, I I wish I could have, you know, if I had known about you know if they had tours now, that'd be something that would be really interesting to see. Yeah, maybe I, one I, day the, some of these places will end up like Graceland, and uh, you know, they will be heralded as uh, these you know amazing places where these amazing people uh, lived and created this amazing uh, body of work. And, you know, Peter Sellers actually visited there. So there's another connection to Peter Sellers. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. Two and the Beatles, Kills, George. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we could and go all, and also, that. And also the fact that, you know, he put up the – George did put up Friar Park as collateral for Life for, of Brian. I was just going to bring the Monty Python in. in you know, you it's go. like yeah. – and that's, and, that's, and that's awesome because it, basically he just wanted to see it get made. Yeah, it's, the, actually, it's the most expensive private movie uh, uh, ever made. And thank God it made his money back. But I mean, I mean, I, it, it amazes me. It really does amaze me, actually, that someone would do something like that because and that kind of gives you a sense of who he was. Yeah. Despite having this really ostentatious abode, <laughs> as it were. I mean, he was willing to give it to up. Yeah. I mean, um, that's, yeah. You know, and it, and that's that, that's it's a very different era. I don't know of anybody today that would do that. I mean. Maybe no, somebody. they don't play with their own money. No, you play with mm -hmm. somebody else's money, definitely. So you take a side trip uh, to write about uh, rock star hotels. Um, okay, so Brian, Chelsea or the Riot House? Oh, God. <laughs> That's a good question. Once again, because I'm – I know I've been by the Chelsea a lot. It's yeah, just and, and it's also yeah. and also the Chelsea's uh, actually and and I think they're they're completely refurbishing it now, so it's not going to be the same Chelsea hotel that you know. No, it's not going to. Which be is free. not. Uh, <laughs> which is not. Uh, the old Chelsea hotel is not exactly a five star quality now, is it? Well, but it, but is it, you know you have to wonder is it ever the point with something that's historical? I mean, obviously people are going to argue that you know CBGB's was not in the best shape. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. That uh, that was a nasty little place as well, but uh, you know, I, I believe now it's a John Varvatos uh, store. Well, you know, it's funny. I was in Cuba a year and a half ago, and it's like you're you're surrounded by you know these sort of dilapidated buildings, and there's a J Lo store. I'm like, really? Really? Like, just <laughs> yeah. Randomly? Oh, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know? Havana will not be Havana uh, as uh, you know uh, uh, in the fantasies uh, uh, for very much longer. Well, don't you think? But don't you think that's uh, I mean, a lot of what this comes down to is what people consider to be rock and roll, and uh, and uh, and what people, you know, I guess it's sort of interpretation of what you think rock and roll is. I mean, there are some people that you know that the term rock star has become so overused. Like you're a rock star. It's like yeah. it, it, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> as much as as much as you wanna as much as you want to uh, think that, uh, you know, it's it. It, it seems to have lost its power somehow. Uh, it's uh, to your point. It's misused. It's overused. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, there was this era where, uh, well, you met you're, you. You mentioned you're a drummer. I, I, I'm a singer in a classic rock band. And and I can right. tell you, when I was young, uh, even when I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, uh, I got up there and acted like it, and that was enough to wow people because that wasn't something people normally did. They didn't put themselves out there. We, you know, we lived at the end of the Victorian age here in the latter right. of the, of the, the 20th century where, you know, the, the Protestant work ethic and those sensibilities and social 
um, cues were uh, were were expected or social expectations, I should say. And yeah. uh, and, you know, rock and roll was the antithesis to that. It was loud and proud and out there. And that that is what yeah. you needed to exude from the stage. And the greats of that, like Freddie Mercury, um, the Beatles and what have you, th- this was like. It was a shining meteor uh, from from the stage, which awed uh, the public. But you know, once we enter into uh, the you know the 21st century, and you get American Idol, you know, karaoke, things like that are ubiquitous now. it's funny my point is is that when I was young I could look out in the audience and see those odd faces I don't see those odd faces I see a lot of enjoyment but I don't see the odd faces anymore I see you know people go oh that's nice Mm -hmm. you know I could probably do that as well well yeah well it's also become ever since the the late 80s early 90s rock and roll has been dumbed down I mean some people could argue that they thought it was dumb to begin with but it's really not true um, I think musically, a lot more of it got dumbed down. Yeah, uh, yeah. over Certainly time, as we get and, into the MTV era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think well, I, I argue that the first half of the '80s produced some of the best pop and rock music ever made. The latter half, not so much. The latter half is when it started to go to hell. And my girlfriend's actually argued that it, I, I argue that the '90s is when rock and roll started to get its balls chopped off. But I, I, I think she actually argues that the late '80s is when it started to go to hell because you had all the glossy production, everything was overdone. You know, the hair bands came in, and I remember, you know. Bon Jovi were really the first band to have those drums that sounded like cannons. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to do it. And so everything became about the sound, and you can't reproduce that. I mean, even even like the power metal bands from Europe now, I remember going to a visiting Gamma Ray in the studio around 2000. And they, they were literally recording in a World War II bunker. I was sitting outside for 30 minutes waiting for Kai Hansen because he couldn't hear me pounding on the door because he's upstairs somewhere <laughs> in this <laughs> fortress. And he, was, and he was basically, you know, they were doing a re-recorded greatest hits and he had to basically at the time because of the technology was replacing all the drum sounds with sampled drum sounds. Yep. They wanted to make it sound thicker. The, the playing wasn't changed. It was just making the drums sound thicker compared with the rest of the instruments. And, you know, and there's just a lot of that stuff going on. And, you know, now it's just – it's very easy. And also you can't have the craziness. I mean, you know, talking about the Riot House, I think if I would – you know, Chelsea Hotel probably has more character, which I prefer that. If I'd wanted to visit the two of them back in the day, I think actually, you know, that I think about it, I'd probably prefer to visit the Riot House just because more crazy stuff went on and it probably wasn't as depressing. Um, Chelsea Hotel has a different kind of history. Yeah. And uh, you know, more oh, uh, so maybe the drug of choice—a uh, little more heroin on the east coast, a little more cocaine on the west coast. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> little less, little, little, little up more upbeat on the west coast, a little more wired, a little more depressed on the east coast. So, the Chelsea Hotel is going to be more interesting building. I don't think the Riot House today is going to be very interesting. It's no. been done over, I'm sure, many times. Yeah. I, of the two, it would have been interesting to see Zeppelin and those guys. I mean, obviously, you—that uh, was slightly recreated with almost, almost famous, famous, yeah, which, yeah. which is you know, of that and Spinal Tap become truer and truer the older you get um, <laughs> and this is by the way the 35th anniversary of spinal tap this year yeah, yeah. um i and i actually I believe saw derek smalls is out on tour uh, by himself and you know it's well they're actually going to do a screening at tribeca they're all going to come back and uh, and work on that and, i think and with, there needs to be a uh a sequel I, I i've been advocating for a sequel here for the last year uh that uh, they're of an age uh, or or ageless, if you will, uh, yeah. to uh, to bring um, you know the greatest rock and roll band uh, ever uh, back to the screen. Well, they also, but they did. I remember they I mean they did a tour. I saw them. I actually saw them on tour in uh, 1984. 
they actually did do a secret club tour. Yeah, uh, so I, it, it, when the movie came out, they did. Uh, like, I think it was just Los Angeles, San Francisco, and uh, in New York. Yeah, and it was, and it was, and I was, I was, I was in Boston actually, oh, and was uh, I went to the channel. And I remember I, I met Michael McKean years later, and I told him about. It. He's like, "Yeah, we were afraid of getting electrocuted at that show because the ceiling was leaking and it was raining outside." And I'm like, well, "That would have just been so spinal." That would have been perfect, right? It would have been horrible, <laughs> but um, but you know, they did do. I mean, they had a live concert thing. They did. They actually, oh, yeah. Yeah. they had a, some sort of VH1 special, and there was something called. There was also the return of Spinal Tap, which was kind of a mixture of. Uh, interviews and live performances. They haven't quite done like a full feature length thing. I do know that right now there is some sort of lawsuit going on over royalties and merchandising. So uh, I'm kind of curious where that's going to go. Um, and I guess it was allowed to move forward because they, they basically made almost no money on the on the merchandising of the movie. I can't believe. I think it was Vivendi or something who maybe had rights to it. Somebody, whatever the case is, there's something where they haven't been paid anything, and they're like, "Come on, really? After like 35 years, there's no, there's been no money made on merchandising on this movie." Yeah, because um, that's that's got to be huge. The merch has got to be huge for them. Uh, well, that's, typ- wow. that's typical music. That's yeah. typical music <laughs> business, though, isn't it? I mean, that's. Well, we'll see. How, we'll see how that plays out. So I, I you know, I. Yeah, and, and and that that I mean, I think almost famous is an era that can't be recreated because you couldn't get the kind of access that he did um, these Camera days. Crow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you have to you have to go through a lot, jump through a lot more hoops. I mean, if you have if you're friends with band managers and you're friends with publicists, if you have relationships with bands and people still do that, that's actually very common. I think in the hard rock and metal world, I have a lot of artists I've interviewed repeatedly, um, so I have a, a certain relationship with them. But these days, I think it's a lot harder. You know, you have to set up interviews, and, and now with the web, people want to have web statistics on things. And uh, yeah, show and us your people, analytics. Uh, yeah, but right. people are more people are more guarded in general. I think. Oh yeah, and rightfully so. Let's face it. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned Diane Bagdera. We talked about John Lennon. Uh, you know, uh, George Harrison was stabbed uh, at Friar Park. Um, you know, a lot of these things uh, change, and I personally think that it really changed uh, in 1969. And I'm going to have you talk about uh, a chapter uh, that you. Uh, discuss the the stomping grounds of many famous L.A. rock and rollers, and that's the bucolic Laurel Canyon scene. And the reason I bring right. that up is because you know uh, there was this this scene there that existed, which was pretty open and wild uh, until the Manson murders. Yeah, and you know that's that, and that was you know, that in Altamont. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, then, right and, there, and, and then yeah, and then Kent State. Yes, I mean all of that stuff. The '60s had a, and even Woodstock. Let's be honest, there was a dark side to the '60s. As much as people talk about peace and love, and uh, the the counterculture challenging the norms, there were other things that were going on also, as as the as the Manson family clearly showed. Um, There was there were there were things that people didn't anticipate. I don't know what exactly it was. I don't know if it was just the drugs. I mean, I mean, I mean, cults have been around for a while. I get, and maybe that was the first. I wonder if that was really the first time in, in American, sort of in, in the American mainstream, people got exposed to the idea of cults. I'm trying to think of cults before then. Had people had people thought about that? You mean dangerous cults? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, if you really want to go back into American history, um, I mean, the first, um, probably most famous. A cult with with some elements of violence, uh, uh, not necessarily by the members, but against the members, and, and that's the Mormons. Yeah, that's a good point. And that but was in course, the eighteen forties. 
so but you know, media, media but, didn't have but the, media didn't, didn't exist like it did in you know exactly in, in real time where uh, you know this murder happened and the next day it's you know splashed across the papers and on every channel, uh, you know because because of the the, the absolute heinous nature of it, uh, you know uh, you know uh, um, you know taking the blood and smearing it on the walls and writing in it and things like that and and making it sound like uh, you know the counterculture was ready to go and kill the silent majority uh, at the time, I think is your point. Yeah. You know, and people like Zappa and John Densmore live there. Yeah. And John, Joni Mitchell. Um, I mean, Cros- there's actually... Crosby, Stills and Nash. I mean, the Eagles. I mean, so many of these bands come from that Laurel Canyon uh, scene there. And you see, you see the photos and everyone just seems very, you know, the mamas and the papas. Yeah. Mama Cast Elliot. You see, it, it seems like just very. It's idyllic. It's uh, the idyllic uh, uh, West Coast L.A. rock star uh, scene. And then, of course, later on, the Red Hot Chili Peppers record Blood Sugar Sex Magic at, at Rick Rubin's studio in Laurel Canyon. I mean, that, that area, I mean, I've driven through there many times. Um, there was actually oh, one of my favorite, my favorite pizza place ever was uh, located there until it relocated to Studio City. Which Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're telling me a New Yorker is going to point to an L.A. pizza yep. place as your favorite pizza place? Oh, yep. my God. What, do you eat with a knife and fork? When it, what's funny, actually, in this place you do, but you don't have to. The funny thing is, is like I, you know, growing up outside of Boston, I uh, I never really I, – I came to NYU and I didn't have the same attachment. And I there was a lot of pizza places I liked, but I just began to realize that – New Yorkers have this thing that they think they have the best of everything <laughs> until probably make my New York friends mad. But it's like L.A. has some great food, too. Yeah, San Francisco oh, got great food. Yeah, Chicago, yeah. I mean, Chicago yeah. pizza is, is yeah. really good. But yeah. there's this, this sense of pride and there's a lot of well, good pizza. Well, New, New York kind of, you know, look, there, you can find anything in New York and you, and yeah. you have for, you know, for a century or more. Um but, but changing, you know, the rest of the world is caught up in globalization. Uh, the informational exchange, as we're kind of talking about today, is, is is so instantaneous that, yeah, you can't keep things a secret or or have hidden gen, gems or, you know, this 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 little pocket of unknown anymore. Well, we don't you know, and, and if you're talking about what's, what we're missing, New York is missing a lot of rock and roll now. I mean, a lot of clubs from the past. Oh, like San Coney Francisco, Island. same thing. There's, there's you know, Coney there's Island High is gone. There. Tramps is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, CBS is gone. It just you know, BB King's you know is uh, that was yeah, that, that just closed down last year. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that it's it's sad that all these places have kind of disappeared, and you don't really know what's going to take their place. Like Terminal Five is a huge venue, but people complain about the sight lines there, that it's really not. Uh, always the best, depending upon where you're actually where actually you're located. So that's kind of a problematic. I mean, 8th Street, I remember when I was at NYU, I went to um, I went to there was a store called It's Only Rock and Roll and that was on West, that was on West 8th Street and that was near Electric Lady Studios and they had this great collection of t-shirts and books and merchandise and stuff. That was long gone. Um, like I said, Sounds is gone and, and Kim's is gone. There were a lot of different music stores in that area and even in the late 90s was a cool black metal store. That I used to get like all these fanzines and obscure albums, and you can, it was first in the West Village, then it moved to the East Village, then it just disappeared. Um, those are distinctly New York places. You said even like you know even if I thought they, even if I thought they were rude, Bleaker Bob's definitely had an interesting selection of music. Mm. 
And so now what do you do? I mean, in this age, people just go on Spotify or they buy stuff Amazon. online. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of there was a place out here in uh, in Valley Stream called Slip Disc Records, and they were old school, man. They did signings with bands like Twisted Sister and Wasp and whoever else back in the day. And they closed, I think, probably several years ago now. I don't think it's a decade ago, but several years ago. And, and the owner, Mike Schutzman, still does these pop up. Uh, shops. He actually just did one at a like this coffee place that is, I think, next door to where the his music store was. He now basically goes to record fairs and sells his inventory there. But you could walk in and they would have like you know the original pressing of uh, Motley Crue's into uh, uh, the first album and um, you know like the original the original indie release and <laughs> not the not the major label reissue. Right, right. You know right. that kind of stuff. And it was just. Uh, you know, you're not going to find that copy of Too Fast for Love that easily in some places. I mean, you should find it on eBay. But once again, it's the idea of going in and and looking. The search. Looking. It's it's a, it's search. about the journey, not necessarily the destination. And I, and I do worry about, you know, a lot of places that people live for. And like the Chelsea Hotel now is going to be refurbished. And I, I guess in some ways you don't want it to be like a grimy little <laughs> <laughs> spot forever. But yet, by the same token, there's something about that old New York. And there's some things I can totally understand. There's some buildings that just need to be just knocked down and, and shouldn't be up anymore. And I get it. But I guess, you know, it's going to happen to anybody who starts to hit middle age. They're going to start moaning about, oh, you know, yeah, things. The good old days. Right. The good old days. And, and as we talked about with the. Get off my lawn, kids. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about the whole Manson thing. I mean, sometimes the good old days were not so good. No. Um, no, and there... we make that point in the in our in our main podcast, Rock and Roll Archaeology. It's really about how, you know, there there was a. A, a dichotomy uh, at least going on uh and certainly in the 60s uh you know and even the counterculture itself uh you know uh you know we we're, we're in the the age of me too uh you know that was yeah. a boys club man uh you oh, know it was. civil rights movement that was a boys club uh and things like that um uh you know point. so there you know there, and those are the things that we talk about in uh in 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 the podcast so uh, as most of our digger fans know so but let's get back to this so Sure. Jimmy Page is the only rocker to get three homes listed and, and a mention of a fourth. Uh, why so many? Uh, I guess it's because it's – I think it's probably because he's All of still, them are interesting. I, I, I agree. Well, they're all really interesting, and he, for a lot of people, in a lot of ways, is sort of like the quintessential rock star, isn't he? He was – He was, and he was both sophisticated and a bad boy. And of course, the fact that he had the he lives in Aleister Crowley's home, and he had an interest in the occult. I think that's probably played up a little more than what it really was. Um, and I think uh, in the chapter here on that, I think that's actually laid out pretty well that he he was just more interested in it than anything else. Um, yeah, not not a, not exactly an acolyte uh, or uh, a practitioner. It was more just a a knowledge based interest. Well, I, yeah, I like that, and and I think that that's. You know, he, he he was so inspired by that that he decided to open up an occult bookshop in the area. You know, he didn't he, he because like, hey, there's there's there's, you know, it was, it was a he opened up in North Kensington. It was called Equinox. He just he said there was no good bookshop in London with a collection of occult books. I don't think he was summoning demons. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe uh, or at least yeah. Uh, they, uh, I'll tell you, if you uh, would have called the uh, uh, the the Zeppelin offices at the time and asked the question, um, they would not let you go away without believing that it certainly was a possibility. Well, and, and interesting too, if you look at you know Tower House and uh, you know and uh, Deanery Garden. I mean, if you look at these places, they're all different. 
you know, Tower House had more of a gothic vibe inside too, and it's it's an, an interesting structure. It makes me think of there's a structure in the east in the West Village that kind of looks like this. You know, where you have the tower and a brick building, and then you know, Deanery Garden is more of like just a very a very kind of uh, peaceful uh, spot to be reclusive in. <laughs> and you wouldn't think that once again, you wouldn't think a rock star lives there. You would think it'd be some British aristocrat, and I think he kind of had that that vibe that you know he had different aspects to his personality that were interesting so while he was known for for being a bad boy of sorts he was intelligent and and uh, had multiple interests which i not is not something necessarily that you always find with it and a lot, a lot of mono, a lot of rock stars are kind of monolithic in a way you know they had a certain way of living and they had a certain attitude and you know like i loved lemmy lemmy was a character you know he was pretty uncompromising in what he did <laughs> You know, he lived life in, in in his own in his own manner, and he, although he was actually also also very smart, um, I actually managed to go to his apartment once. Yeah, uh, 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 up behind uh, the rainbow. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, I think on Harrod Street, like that. That was he was actually very close to the rainbow, and I got I we were introduced by a mutual friend, and so I'd interviewed him on the phone a couple of times. So he invited me up, and I got to see the crazy Nazi collection <laughs> that yeah, he had there, yeah. which was a little disturbing when you walk in, like okay, oh, daggers and yeah, yeah, daggers and helmets, and but you know he was a huge World War II history buff, and he could talk speak very eloquently and intelligently about uh, the entire history of World War II, the good things and the bad things, and um, he sort of had that morbid fascination with that stuff, which you know rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But he lived in a simple two-bedroom apartment in L.A., you know. And that was he, it. Yeah, that was his his one and only uh, place because he just – he wanted to be on the road all the time. Well, he was also very uncompromising. I mean Led Zeppelin had hits. Yeah. You know, Led Zeppelin wanted to appeal to a wider audience. I mean they wanted to do their own thing and they certainly did. They Part of the reason I think they were as successful as they, as they were and why they're still revered is because they tried many different styles of music. Motorhead was sort of the opposite. It was like they, they – They did one thing really well. Yeah, although, you know, like Another Perfect Day, uh, Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy, although it became a much more melodic album. Um, yeah, there was like Snake Bite Love in the 90s was a bit more proggy. There were little variations here and there. When they finally did an acoustic number called Whorehouse Blues, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, it's just not what you would expect from them. And I, the joke that I once heard is, you know, if we want to hear if we want to hear an unplugged set, we want to hear it from Motorhead. Like uh, of all the bands, you know, right, right. I'm just like, what would that sound like? But they never. <laughs> you, you probably maybe it wouldn't have been so great. But but he did the opposite. He, he was so uncompromising. I'm not even sure. You know, he actually once said to me, he's like, you're either out on the road doing it or you're sitting on your laptop, you know, kind of taking care of, of business. And and so I think they probably got dicked around a bit on the on the on the monetary side of things, and they weren't selling the same amount of records. Although the catalog kept getting reissued. But you know, it's amazing that guy made it to seventy, man. I mean, I, know. I mean, I mean, he was showing me the six diabetes pills he had in the morning, the six he would take at night, and then his girlfriend offered me a Jack and Coke, and I'm like, dude, correlation <laughs> right here. And he and he knew that, and I think near the end he was like, you know, drinking wine instead of Jack and Coke, which still has, you know, a lot of sugar, sugar. Right. You right. know, and I don't know if he was still doing speed or not, but like he he just. It's amazing he actually made it to seventy, given the 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 the, the kind of life he led. It was very uncompromising, and in a way. That's I, you know I should have I probably should have bugged them and said hey we should do it. it's just a separate section on Lemmy's apartment. You should <laughs> have. That, that, you know? I, I think that would have made a, a great uh, uh, selection to uh, to the to the thirty. So I, I have to ask about yeah. the one home or hotel with wings uh, in the book, and that is the Starship. Yeah, you know the Starship, Led Zeppelin's uh, Led Zeppelin's plane. 
which well, is, is rental. Is, if you yeah, will. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> but it, it's, it's more romantic to say that they actually was there. Well, that's the way it was portrayed in the song. Remains the same. Uh, definitely. Look, uh, Led Zeppelin has their own plane, uh, and it's and it's a jet uh, at that. It's uh, yeah, but the first Boeing seven twenty at the cost of three quarters of a million dollars, and of course, just had. I mean, you had a bar, you had tons of seats, you had a thirty foot couch. Uh, you know, ton, uh, and of a, course, lots a, of TVs a, you know, a bedroom and in the videos. back, and yeah, yeah, and some <laughs> porn videos, and uh, you know, I'm sure lovely, uh, lovely, uh, porn, Ooh. or you know, sexy stews, as Austin Powers would say, bring on the sexy <laughs> stews, man. And of course, you know, when they had Let's that shag, uh, baby, <laughs> that really uncomfortable flight from uh, San Francisco to LA, uh, many, many moons ago, that inspired the uh. The near crash, <laughs> the almost crash, and, and almost famous. Right. Uh, they, they they shrunk the, pl- the size of the plane down for that film. Um, I mean, obviously, for the most part, with famous rock stars, you seem to you seem to hear them uh, perishing in small in small planes. But or helicopters, I, right? I, I've been on flights. I've been on you know regular flights cross country where the turbulence was really really vicious. And you know, if you're if you're on the starship and you're in the middle of um, how should we say it? You're, just, you're getting intimate with someone, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden you get turbulence. I mean, that, that could hurt, depending upon what position you're in, right? I mean, and this is let's face it, this actually and a fireplace. There was a fireplace in it as well. How exactly. do you put a fireplace into a jet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, what I wonder, I'm what I'm amazed that there wasn't a fire that broke out. Right, right. I mean, I mean that, that's crazy, too, because the carpeting is right up next to it. It's yeah. not like there's really a whole lot of space in there. No. And even in this picture, it's not even great. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious <laughs> myself. But then again, see, this is the whole part of that era. People yeah. didn't really – they just took a chance on it. Well, um, and, and the public just assumed uh, that, oh, of course, of these, these are wildly successful and insanely rich people. That Of course they would own a giant airplane. Of course, you know, and, and, and Zeppelin weren't the only people to use it. There's Deep Purple. Oh, yeah. The same Elton plan. John, Sinatra, yeah. Peter Frampton. Yeah. I mean, this is actually, though, the predecessor to the Iron Maiden plane that you have. Yeah, which right. I believe – do they actually own that plane? I, now, I know Bruce Dickinson actually flies it, but uh, – they... Not always, but yes, he does. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's a good question, actually, if they actually – I'm going to assume or, that Or they... do they just put Eddie on uh, whatever rental that they get? Well, Ed Force One, I imagine that – Eddie, Eddie, for those they, of you who don't they, know, they, the, 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 the mascot of uh, Iron Maiden. Yeah, I imagine at this point they've got to they've got to own that. I mean, Iron Maiden is a giant, giant band. I yeah, mean, they are it, it, bigger than the states. I mean, you start looking at what they do, like in South America and uh, Eastern Europe and stuff like that. And you're right, they are a giant band still today. Yeah, and they're they're really one of the only ones that uh, you know. That consistently just sell out venues across the world, mm-hmm. and yet, and then interestingly enough, not everybody knows that. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm surprised at how many people don't know how successful Iron Maiden is. They are the, probably the most successful band you can't recognize. Whereas, True. you know, whereas Led Zeppelin, you instantly recognize. Of them. course, well, and, a different and, era. You know, the change. They show up uh, at the beginning of uh, the change, the late seventies, early eighties, and uh, as we've already discussed, uh, things begin to uh, turn differently. Well, you know, and and, and you know, another, another house that I actually want to bring up is is Prince's home. I you was know, gonna, Hays- I was gonna bring that up. Hazley Park. It's a weird thing. It's it's. I think it's one of the most interesting because it's not really a house, a a home, maybe, but it's in an industrial park. 
Well, it, it looks it, if you if you drove by it and didn't know it was this place, you'd be like, oh, there's you know some corporate headquarters from, yeah. from wherever. Like, you yeah. wouldn't think of it. And surrounded the, by uh, you know uh, nondescript industrial buildings. Well, because you know, instead of instead of having a home studio, it was like a studio with an apartment. Like he he lived there. I mean, he he liked to be surrounded by all of his toys and yeah. and and his and his friends and and, and, and the party and, and and to play music constantly. I mean, if yeah. those who kind of delve a little bit into Prince's background, you'll find that he would literally you know put on a three hour show and then go to some club and jam until four in the morning, uh, like constantly. Well, he was a, he was a big fixture in the in the Twin Cities. I mean, he in yeah. Minneapolis, example. Yeah. He and he liked that. I mean, there are a lot of people who end up moving to a certain place and then getting caught up in that culture and staying there. New York and L.A. specifically being the the ones that you think of. Mm-hmm. And, and it was to degree San Francisco too. I mean, you had the whole Bay Area thrash scene, and that was long after the psychedelic scene, <laughs> psychedelic era. But there's been a lot of different movements uh, up in the Bay Area as well that have attracted people. But yeah, I, I, you know, Minneapolis, it, it, that, whenever you think, I mean, there's been other people that have come out of there, but he's the one that everyone remembers. He liked being a fixture of that scene. He was a part of it. Uh, he lived it. And also, he had his own stage in, in Paisley Park. I mean, yeah. he, could rehearse, he could rehearse for tours. And I know there's some footage because I know that they had that uh, 1983 in a microphone release that came out. And I know that there was a there was like a video that had one of his songs and they just synced together footage from a rehearsal. You know, and and it makes sense. I mean, the '80s were interesting in that regard, also. If you think about the fact that Journey was like, I think, the first major band to bring large video screens into an arena setting. I think you started to see bands think about, and their management starts to think about uh, things from a business perspective. And and you know, and some bands, you know, probably owning their own lighting rig and everything else, and then renting it out to people that would open up for them. Yeah. I think even supposedly Metallica at one point had their own insurance and sold insurance to like the opening acts or something like that. Like there was, you know, it, it became, people became more business minded. Well, I, you know, let's face it. The, 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 a band is really a company. Uh, it's a, a small company that, uh, you know, if you, if you, you know, think of it that way. Uh, and most famously, I think you can look at how the Grateful Dead and, and then subsequently Fish and some of the yeah. other jab bands do, which is you don't need a record company, uh, really, uh, especially nowadays where there's no tangible product. Um, you, you need to act like a business. You have a company. Yeah. And from that company, you go out there and sell your wares. And when you make some money, well, then you invest it into uh, other pieces to in, in, enhance your situation. And where whether that be, um, you know, marketing or, uh, you know, a, a financial uh, uh, a sector uh, in the company or what have you, um, that's what you do. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I think we're seeing more and more of that because let's face it, you know, the recordings aren't where the money is anymore. It, it, it's no. the live uh, act. And uh, that's why there's so many people out on the road these days because they're just not getting the royalty checks uh, that they're, they're used to uh, anymore. So, so oh, yeah. here's a question for you. Do, sure. do, do you think the old school rock star still exists? I was thinking about that. I'm trying to think of who the modern rock stars are now. You know, Dave Grohl is sort of one of sort of one of the few these days that you would consider to be a rock star. Yeah, and he needs that whole quality and has the look and feel. And you, you and when you walk in and you are at a Foo Fighters concert, you you kind of can get that vibe. And right. be, being a, a veteran of so many of these bands uh, and seeing them in their prime back in the in in that day that we've been talking about today, um, yeah, you. 
you definitely get that with the Foo Fighters. I get that with Trent Reznor too, although Trent Reznor's more sedate than I think he used to be. Mm-hmm. In certain ways, I mean, you know, the di- speaking of the Manson house, I mean, you know, you know that was, uh, you know, Sharon Tate's, Sharon Tate, that, that the whole tragedy. I mean, you know, he recorded a lot of the dot of the downward spiral there, yeah. And even even in the room where they you know, <laughs> people were killed, it's like it's pretty dark and twisted. That's a very dark and twisted album. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think of, I'm trying to think of other ones. I mean, you know, Josh Hom from Queens of the Stone Age is another one. Um, he of the three of them is probably more of the very un-PC rock star. You know, like I think he kicked a photographer in the head, like a woman in the head recently. There was a controversy over that. Eh, he grew up in the desert. Uh, you know, what do you expect? Uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, but again, it, it, he's not going to be a cultural driver. Uh, the Queens of the Stone Age is a great band, but, uh, you know, you're not even in the ballpark of Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or some of the other people that we've talked about today, Bowie, uh, Elton John, Prince. I, I'm not quite sure. I, to me personally, the, 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 and, and a lot of people might disagree with this, but I think the right. only artist that is on the stage musically that yeah. can command the term rock star in the traditional sense is Lady Gaga. Which is ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, I should say it's actually he actually kicked Josh. I actually kicked the, the, the this woman's camera and knocked her to the ground as opposed to her head. But right, right, I guess right. it's almost the same it's the same effect. She was knocked over, and I mean, yeah, I mean, Lady Gaga is is actually a big metal fan. So when she did the Metallica thing on the Grammys a couple years oh ago, that actually that, she was that, fantastic. That, that worked. It's but it, it is weird right now. I mean, right now, look what's what we were talking about before. In the past, rock and roll was a boys' club. It's been discussed that. A lot. I mean, rock and roll, first of all, it was really started by black artists. It was African-American yep. artists taking it from rhythm and blues and taking it from jazz. Then it gets taken over by the white artists. The lowest economic rung. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it's like then Elvis Presley grabs hold of Jerry Lee Lewis and suddenly it becomes more mainstream to white America by having artists that are Caucasian. And then by the late 60s – you know some of the some of the most famous famous rock bands in it, especially in terms of sales, end up being like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Who. At least you know what I noticed. I mean, Led Zeppelin obviously got caught up in lawsuits over uh, the copyright infringement of some songs that they you know riffs that they borrowed, and they had to revise their songwriting credits on the early albums. On the other hand, the Rolling Stones never hid their influences nope. and even took them out, even recorded with them and took them out on tour, and they at least made made a point to say you have to listen to these people like these are our influences oh they they sometimes wouldn't even play unless uh you know people like helen wolf could open for them yeah which is great and i and i th- there's there's a difference there and you know rock bands have always ripped each other off <laughs> it's sort of the way it goes but yeah you uh, know artists in general that's that's how it happens yeah. i mean you know the the old adage uh, you know good artists borrow and great artists steal and there's arguments that now you have a new sort of a new breed of African American artists that are rockers that are coming up now. I mean, Lenny Kravitz was one of the few 20 years ago, but now it's there are more of them that are stepping up, and that maybe maybe that's the thing that's going to bring rock and roll back again. There's something there's something missing, and I think uh, I don't art- think anything's bringing rock and roll back, not to the cultural relevance that it once had, and I don't think music itself will uh, will attain this. I think there was a special moment where you know yeah. new technology. I mean, let's face 
face it, you know, even the the ability to uh, record was fairly new. It was less than 100 years old when this all starts. In fact, it was about, yeah. you know, 50, 60 years old when it all starts. It gets perfected uh, through uh, uh, through World War II uh, and, and just afterwards. Uh, and it just happens to be the musical style uh, following this... Uh, democracy which was now uh you know king of the mountain uh at yeah. the end uh that you know that that took its culture and exported it uh, around the world and what 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 uh, what what then happens is they you know look for these pockets and we talked a little bit about this today where you can grab these new influences to enhance what you're doing famously with the sitar in the beatles uh, is, yeah. a, is a great moment right there and it, you just i just don't think you can do that today uh, it's going to be very interesting where art goes or because so much of it is dependent on finding unusual influences uh, and and mashing them together to create something new and in a global uh, uh, world that is you know instantaneous uh, information that anybody can have completely democratized it's going to be difficult for, for for people to achieve that and therefore be unique enough to be worthy of the term rock star I mean, I think also the, the it's it's also the the cultural uh, it, rock and roll in the past challenged cultural norms. At the beginning, yeah. part of that part of that was just the race issue. I mean, some people yeah. saw it as race saw it as race music. You know, John Waters captured that whole uh, that hairspray. whole vibe with hairspray and the fact yeah. that you know white and black kids are dancing together. Oh my God! And then Elvis yeah. comes along and like you shake Elvis the pelvis, he's swiveling his hips. We can't show him sexuality. Pelvis. Holy crap! Right, right. And then right. the late sixties, it's drugs and it's promiscuous sex and it's experimenting with different lifestyle I, uh, options. Socialism. <laughs> my God! You know, and 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 then you know by the eighties, feminism in the seventies, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. Sexual, the sexual revolution. By the late '80s, that's when things started to shift, and I and I look at specifically look at the hair bands, where suddenly what once where glam was once uh, you know flirting with androgyny and was kind Almost of sexuality, yeah, mm -hmm. confusing people. You know, now it was just guys were dressing as girls just to get laid. Yeah. I mean, it was it when it was it wasn't. It was almost on tongue in cheek, and, and I'm, I don't even think it was even ironic. And, and it's funny though because you can imagine that there's still a certain amount of homophobia in that scene at the same time. Uh, and yeah, it's like, you know, but you guys are dressing up as chicks. Like, <laughs> you know, what's what's really what's? It was a funny cartoon that I saw recently. It was uh, I think one of those bizarro cartoons. I saw it today on on Facebook where. I was talking about the, the founding fathers going, well, we don't really need to write anything in here about rights for transgender people. After all, we are writing this document as men wearing high heels and wigs. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was hilarious. So I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a good it's point. It's implied. Like, <laughs> and I, I don't know. That makes me think, actually, there's a band from Boston called The Upper Crust who I, I covered uh, many moons ago. I think they're still around, actually. My girlfriend's on a trip uh, in Beckway, and they're actually, I think one, at least one of the members of that band is, is friends with her circle. You know, and they would dress as French aristocrats, and they would kind of parody the whole notion of being proper rockers. And they, I remember saw them open up for Aerosmith, and they had a manservant putting coal into this, into this uh, shoving coal into this, into this furnace so they could power their amps because they had coal-powered amps. <laughs> Um, and I just thought it was great that they – it was kind of really a riff on ACDC's big balls. I mean it really was that whole notion of polite society not really being as polite as they think they are or like people in the upper crust not really being as – any more sophisticated. They have the same primal desires as anybody else. As any yep. blue They just guy. hide it better. Well, you got money. You can hide it better. And I think that's a lot of what we've talked about today is the ability to you know, uh, shove some of this stuff under the rug because you have the, the means to do so.
And also, you, you brought up another point, and it's it, it, been said, especially with the 80s, wasn't a great time for women. So it's ironic that you bring up that Lady Gaga sort of like the biggest rock star right now. And right now it's pop, female pop singers who've taken over. Uh, I'm not a fan of most of the music. I, it doesn't – it really doesn't do anything for me. And it's, you know, it's sort of that time you're going to have that pendulum swing over. Uh, you haven't had – still haven't had as many female rockers. I mean you have talented guitarists like Orianti and Anita Strauss. Yeah. Although Ori- Orianti went really pop on that second record. And, and the stuff she did with John, uh, Richie Sambora just really – I, I didn't get it. I was like, what are you guys doing? Like, you guys are these two, like, shredders. You should be doing this balls-out rock album. And they didn't do it. And I just – I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> like, I get you want to do something different, and Richie's solo stuff has crossed over a wide range of genres. But I just – I don't know. He uh, he's, he's, he's a bluesy player, but, you know, he's got – his first solo album in particular was fantastic. He's got a soulfulness to his playing, and he still rocks out, and that's what Bon Jovi's missing now. Yeah, now that, he, now that, he now that the he's band. not in the band, right? Right. Even right, even right, near right. the end, like at least the last album he did with the band, also you could I could you could just tell his heart wasn't in it. I I, I could only imagine what he was thinking playing that stuff live, going, "Oh my God, what's going on here?" Um, but you know, women, yeah, women didn't always have it the best, and there aren't that many, still many all female bands. There's more of them. Some of them tend to be tribute bands, like you know, there's Judas Priestess, there's the Iron Maidens. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Elves, yeah. Elves, and I mean, I know the singer of Judas Priestess, and they do a great job. Of, of 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 doing those songs and it, it's great to hear female vocals with that because she she can really she can you really can wail it. yeah yeah militia is great but there's also you know I remember when the, when the Donnas uh, you know sort of came a little bit popular like 15 20 years ago they were they were sort of on the cusp. Yeah, never made it huge, but uh, no, and they were, and they were, it was, it was a runaways vibe kind of a yeah. thing, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and the runaways, you know, if you've seen the Joan Jett documentary recently, that's interesting because she really had to struggle a lot. I mean, despite the fact that she had this audience, that, that a lot of people in the industry really didn't want her to succeed. No, no, uh, you know, thank thank God, uh, Kenny Laguna, you know, grabbed her up and helped her, uh, and still helps her to this day. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, Lita Ford, you know, did sort of the opposite. She played up the sex appeal a lot more. Yeah, she really did. And and even Dee Snyder had said it on one of those VH1 programs. He's like, Lita, you're a great guitar player. You don't need to do that. <laughs> like, you don't need to. You don't need to sex it up that much. And that was kind of unfortunate. But that but the, was the expectation, and that was the only way to get attention, and that was the only way to get signed. And the only like way like to Vixen, sell records. you know, yeah. and and, yeah. and a lot of the, and the gals in Vixen were talented players, but unfortunately, you know, the sex appeal came first. It's definitely changed. Maybe part of it is we need we do need uh, more representation in the rock realm other than just white dudes. At the same time, there are cultural forces right now. You'd think with this the political shit show we have in this country that somebody would want to do like an American Idiot, like Green Day did at the you know when the the, the last. Uh, Great uh, rock and roll album, uh, you know, 2004. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was that was literal, a literal middle finger to yep. the administration, to middle America, saying, you know what, we're not like you, and we don't want to be like you. Right. And and I, it seems like people are more afraid now to make statements. And part of it also is unfortunately social media. I mean, can you? I, I mean, I asked Sebastian Bach, like, you know, with the bottle incident where he threw a bottle back in the audience after someone had thrown it at him, and then he, you know, he hit the wrong person, and then he got into a fight, and then you know later on wearing that terrible T-shirt. Um, it, how that would people would respond on social media today is like you know people would forget about it in two or three days. It would it would it would, and it was an interesting point. I mean, I I didn't want to belabor the point because he's apologized for those things a million times, but uh, it seems like. You know, in some ways, you get crucified very quickly these days. Although a lot of it does blow over, it just depends on how severe it is. Um, there are some classic, you know, if if some people knew uh, about some of these famous rock stars, then what we know now, it'd be interesting to see how they would have responded back then, 
or if those rockers were coming of age today, how that would have would have been handled. Um, you know, you do hear all sorts of stories about you know rockers with, with underage girls and and uh, all sorts of drug use. And you know, I'm sure there's some people who can. <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis was uh, <laughs> evidently not called killer for no reason. Um, you know, but things like that is things like that are very. A lot of that was more covered up back in the day. Um, and at the same time, there's some positive things. Look, I mean, it took Rob Halford a long time to come out of the closet. I mean, today no one would blink an eye. No, although think. that is one of those things that uh, where, you know, when he did, you're like, how did I not see that? Freddie Mercury, man. I mean, Freddie Mercury never yeah, really – the name of the band is Queen. And he come never <laughs> publicly acknowledged his bisexuality. Yeah. But after a while, he's getting up there in tights and like – um, but it was sort of it was kept it was it was kept they were like the worst kept secrets of rock and roll, and people didn't necessarily need to know that stuff. And the tabloid culture just got stronger and stronger. And now it's like America kind of emulates what the British were doing with the tabloids. It's trying to seek out sensationalism wherever we can. And oddly enough, maybe rock and roll wasn't going to thrive in that kind of an environment because people were more easily shocked by stuff back then. Now we're, we're barely shocked by anything. Uh, and, and, you know, what what statement are you going to make? And I, I don't know what that, that heralds for this, the future of popular music in general. If it's just all going to be this homogenous lump. Where, you I'm, know, all I'm, afraid, I'm afraid it is. I mean, you know, uh, we, we've discussed, uh, you know, our mutual towns known specifically for their individual character uh, yeah. by street corner uh, or certainly neighborhood. And that doesn't really exist anymore and so i think that is uh, you know a precursor to uh, most of the rest of the society the fact is is that living in a global connected world uh, you know like all things it's a double-edged sword and uh, you know one of the, the 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 bad things is you know this the uniqueness that um uh you would find uh in whatever region you would go to or the different people you would find um yeah. we're all the same now and we know this we know which is in in some ways really great you know it takes away the fear aspects um yeah. but we you know we, everybody has the same hopes dreams and desires and fears uh anywhere around the world uh and uh you know uh, it's so easy to go down the street and pick up chinese food uh you know uh anytime, anywhere, and any other uh, uh, cultural uniqueness. And so those will all fade away into this melding new thing, whatever it may be. Uh, all right, I got yeah. one more question for you. Sure. All right. So if you could flip one of the 30, which would it be and why? Oh, in terms of houses? Yeah. Uh, interesting. That's an interesting question. <laughs> You know, because it's a question of what it, it, you have to think of what the, the market value is now. <laughs> That's the tricky part. I mean, you could imagine that uh, George Harrison's house is probably worth a pretty penny at this point. Yeah, a lot more um, than a hundred. What was it? One hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, back in the day. Um, yeah. I mean, that certainly is one that I think I mean, that's that, that seems it feels like almost the biggest one in here. Yeah. Um, Freddie Mercury's place. I don't know. You'd have to. I, you know, once again, is are people going to buy it because it's a place that someone famous lived, or are they going to buy it because of the of the property? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Johnny. I mean, you can't Johnny Cash's house would have been great to flip if it actually hadn't burned down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think, but I think, I think the 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 Harrison estate that's that's really quite something. I mean, that that looks you could actually even, makes me almost think of the the house in that 
in that terrible remake of The Haunting, but the, the, that house digitally was so, so imposing. It really was. Barry Gibbs' place is pretty nice, too, actually. Oh, yeah, in Miami. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's uh, I have actually, there's a funny story about him. I, there's a, a bookstore out in L.A. on the Sunset Strip, which is two doors down from Book Soup. It's actually, you have to go through an alleyway to the back of this bungalow, and it's called Mystery Pier Books. And a lot of famous people like Johnny Depp will go in there, uh, and Charlize Theron, to buy books. And Barry Gibb came in, and it's a father and son team that run the place. And evidently, uh, Barry Gibb came in one day. And it turns out that uh, it turns out that the you know the father he was a huge he's a huge Barry Gibb fan, mm-hmm. like and he's like oh my god, and so Barry decides to to you know uh, you know Harvey the the father says you know he's, he's he says you know he's, he helps him out he uh, and then Barry Gibb says well you know if we, if you ship this to me and it gets damaged what what happens because what they do is they sell first editions and often many of them are signed like they had a they had an oscar wilde book with an actual original poem by oscar wilde oh in front wow. of the book so barry wow. gibb buys this book i have no idea what book it is and so well, i would we'll buy say, that i've been to pere uh, yes. and uh, stood in front of the uh the famous uh, uh, uh tomb excellent so they, they have stuff like that and they so uh you know, Harvey, Jason, the, the, the elder and the, the co-owner, he says, well, all right, I'll, I'll fly this down to you in Miami because it definitely was a very expensive book. And I could afford to, you know, to, to, to buy the plane ticket. And Barry Gibbs like, well, you know what? You can come. You can stay at the house. Wow. <laughs> and, I think, and Harvey, he, he told me he didn't actually do it because it just, I think he felt he was just he, – he, he didn't want to impose. But Barry Gibbs was very sincere. It was just like, you know, if you're going to do that for me, you can come down and stay at the house. That's awesome. <laughs> right? You know, and yeah, you know, not everybody I, 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 you know, you and I have interviewed different people. I mean, I've gotten to know a few people. You don't, I think everyone assumes that when you interview a lot of rock stars, you become friends with them and have their phone no. number. Yeah. It's really not true. You learn there, that pretty quickly. That's not the case. <laughs> there's a few, there's a few people I'm connected with and you find, you know, when you're friends with somebody that they're just, you, you're, you connect with them because of your mutual interest and because you're just because you're regular people underneath. Um, celebrity culture dictates that we have to, that we have expectations of people that are not normal. I do think that a lot of the rock and roll lore that's discussed in this book and other places, you know, a lot of it's true. And there are things that are not necessarily true. It's like, you know, the time that uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful were busted, you know, at the party having pot. Yeah. <laughs> and at the house and uh, and. Uh, and, you know, there really wasn't that much going on there. Um, you know, it no, was just, it was a big setup. It was a big setup. It's, and it's, it's in the end, that's why they got off. You know, that was that was at, at uh, Richard's Redland, Redland House, Redland's yep. House in, yep. in West Sussex. And he basically, um, you know, they had some they had some weed or whatever on them. And Marianne Faithful was wrapped in a rug and I guess it, it came unwrapped. And so then the rumor is like, oh, my God, there was an orgy. And because there were like a lot of chocolate bars everywhere, oh, my God, there was an orgy. And they were using a chocolate bar, to, you know, in a perverse way. And it's like, who makes this stuff up? <laughs> it's, it's 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 sort of funny. But and I, and I think the Stones probably didn't mind it that much because it just gave them that sold, bad. Oh, yeah. Sold more records yeah and it made them the anti-beatles i mean that's mm-hmm. kind of that was that was that, that that worked for them but today is like people would probably disavow that kind of stuff it would yeah. just be like oh no 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 we, we didn't do that and yeah you know i think people want i think part of something i look at a book like this and, and and stories that people hear they want there to be something a little wilder and crazier because their lives are so normal 
that they want to think that there's this other kind of life that they could be living or it's a fantasy that they could have. Um, yeah, there are a lot of perks to being a rock star. There's also a lot of pitfalls as we're learning. Yep. Uh, you have to be careful who you let into your inner circle. And these days it's very different. You know, I was on a tour bus for a band about 10, 12 years ago and I'm doing a bio for them and I'm chatting with them and there's a sign right right on the, at the end of the couch right before you get to the bunks that says no cell phones or cameras beyond this point. And I asked the tour manager, I said, what that's, what's that about? He's like, well, you know, some of these guys have girlfriends. They hook up with groupies. The groupies put the photos on the internet. Yep. <laughs> Somebody gets and, in trouble. Yep, there's lots of trouble, lots of hell to pay. It's like, it's like you know, it, it, it's, it's hilarious that it's kind of come to that. Remember when the Metal Sludge website would reveal all the stories about 80s rockers and the groupies would tell stories about their size and about their performance and how they were treated and this and that. And it, like, it opened up this whole can of worms. I was like, did you really want to know that? I, I, <laughs> it is kind of funny and respect like oh you know like don Dawkins is very much a gentleman you know he, he introduces you to the band members the next day and then <laughs> and doesn't just put you off the bus and that's great but it's just it is a little or it's so and so you know we use two condoms if you ask <laughs> but i don't i don't know how much how much do we really want to know and uh how much is it that people want to have a little bit of that fantasy yeah well uh, we all want our heroes or anti-heroes and the worst thing that can happen to the fantasy is to you know get the reality which never measures up which is why they say never meet your idols right brian reisman thank you so much for spending time with us today on deeper thanks and rock thanks man it's been great chatting with you i hope you were moderately entertained you stayed awake that was good <laughs> um, <laughs> we had a really good time thanks christian it was great to chat with you What a fun time with Brian Reisman. We sincerely want to thank him for spending a lengthy interview with us. We hit on this in the interview, and now many of the rockers in these homes open the doors to photographers, to parties, weddings, even concerts for the public. Yeah, not anymore. The risk is just too great. Only in a severely controlled environment will you ever find yourself at uh, one of these events. In the last chapter in the book, titled Colorfully Enhanced Cribs, written by Brian, tells us how the MTV Cribs show was ostensibly a lifestyles of the rich and famous for the rock and pop demographic. And now that I said the word demographic, you can guess the results. It was mostly trickery, embellishment, enhanced, or outright fakery, uh, more fantasy than reality. Give the people what they want, I guess. Well, it's all here in Rockstars at Home, published by our friends at Apollo. Okay, that's a wrap. A time for me to get some of that Danish Huga in my very own Rockstar abode. So, until next time, hey, 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 keep up the rockin'.
looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.